So happy Father's Day, everybody. We're going to uh, do something risky this morning. It doesn't involve Father's Day, but we're going to do something risky, and it involves audience participation during worship. You see where the risk is there? Can you guys help me if we do some audience participation? You can? Good. We've got at least one volunteer here. We're going to... We're going to be in Acts chapter 21. We're going to cover the second half if you want to start turning there. Acts 21, we're going to start in verse 17. But first, we want to try something uh, that I have never done in church before, and that's to play Jeopardy. You familiar with Jeopardy, the, the TV show Jeopardy? Uh, the game goes, if you've seen the game, the game goes where the answer is given, and then it's up to you, the participant, to uh, come up with the question. So as an example, we could say the, uh, the answer is uh, utensils one uses to eat. And so your questions could be, what is a fork? What is a spoon? What are my hands? Whatever utensils you use to eat. So the question I'm going to ask you this morning, you've been studying the book of Acts, and uh, over the last several months you've been looking at the Apostle Paul, so you've learned an awful lot about the Apostle Paul, haven't you? You studied him for months, so just quickly think about an attribute or a characteristic that uh, describes Paul to you. So the, as you see on the screen, the answer is, this is an attribute or a characteristic of the Apostle Paul. So the question is, anybody, this is where you participate, this is the risky part, somebody shout it out. What is dedication? Very good in a form of a question, way to go Helen. What else? Do what? Faithful. What is faithful? <laughs> what is faithful? Dedicated. What else? What is tenacity? What is tenacity? Ah, very good. What else? Anybody have another thought? What is the least of these? What is the least of these? Very good. Very good. That's unusual. But I, I normally think about, when I think about the Apostle Paul, about uh, boldness. Uh, tenacity, like Stephen said, uh, courageous, uh, leadership, hard-headed. Was Paul hard-headed? He was hard-headed. When he was committed, he was savvy, he was intelligent. But what we're going to study today is uh, something that I seldom think about when I think about the Apostle Paul, and that is, what is humility? You were getting to it a little bit when you said the least of these. Uh, but the Apostle Paul was humble, and that's what we're going to look at this morning in the second half of Acts chapter 21. It's actually a characteristic that's uh, almost a defining characteristic of a Christian, is it not? One who is humble. So we're going to look at that, uh, but to do so, let's start first, just look back at the end of what we studied last week. That was Acts, uh, the first half of Acts 21. We'll pick it up in verse 12. I'm going to be reading today from the New American Standard Bible. And I put on the slides, you see, the, the scripture so that we could follow along and I could highlight a few words as we went. We'll see how that works. But uh, this is from the New American Standard. And we'll pick it up in verse 12 that we studied last week. It says, when we had heard this, who is we? We was the Apostle uh, Paul along with Luke and seven, at least seven Gentile brothers who had come with him to go to Jerusalem. So Paul and his traveling friends were there in Jerusalem, and we heard this, and what had they heard? They had heard the prophet Agabus, 
make the latest of many prophecies that Paul was going to suffer hardship and persecution when he got to Jerusalem. This was not the first time. In fact, Paul says he heard it in every city. But Agabus repeats it again that, Paul, as you go to Jerusalem, you're going to be persecuted and there's going to be difficulties. So when Paul and his traveling companions heard that yet again, as well as the local residents began begging him not to go to Jerusalem. So they were in Caesarea at the time, the last stop on the way to Jerusalem. In verse 13, then Paul answered, What are you doing? Weeping and breaking my heart, for I am ready not only to be bound, but even to die at Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And since he would not be persuaded, we fell silent, remarking the will of the Lord be done. After these days, we got ready and started on our way up to Jerusalem. Some of the disciples from Caesarea also came with us, taking us to Manasseh of Cyprus, a disciple of long standing, with whom we were to lodge. So you see in verse 14, the conclusion from our study last week, where we said, when we persist in our faith and when we exhibit strong faith amongst other people, we also, not only, God not only strengthens our faith, he strengthens the faith of those who are observing. And we see that in verse 14. The apostle, I mean, all of Paul's friends were begging. That's not a casual kind of request. They were begging him not to go to Jerusalem. And then by verse 14, because of Paul's persistence, his hard-headedness, his strong faith, they were ready for him to go. They said, God's will be done. They were convinced this was God's will. And they not only let him go, they led him. They went with him a two or three days walk all the way to Jerusalem. So Paul's strong faith had an impact on the faith of his, the people that were with him. And then they go to this Manasseh's home. You see he's a, man, he's a disciple of long standing. That's a nice way of saying an old man with a big house. Right? So they went to see Manasseh. A man of long standing, a disciple of long standing in Jerusalem. And that's where we'll pick it up today in verse 17. And this is where Paul visits first church of Jerusalem. It actually was the first church. It was the first Christian church in Jerusalem. It was established about 27 years earlier. And as we'll see later in this passage, it's a big church. So Paul and his friends, his Gentile friends, go to visit first church. And so in verse 17, after we arrived in Jerusalem, the brethren received us gladly. And the following day, Paul went in with us to James, and all the elders were present. And after he had greeted them, he began to relate one by one the things which God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. And when they heard it, they began glorifying God. So the first thing I see there in verse uh, 18 is that... Uh, Paul went in with us. So not only Paul went to visit the, the first church of Jerusalem, he brought his Gentile traveling companions with him. So they all went in to visit with whom? It says with uh, James and all the elders. Now it's interesting, this is not Paul's first visit to first church in Jerusalem. He had been there, it's covered in Acts chapter 15, which was about, uh, I think it was about eight years earlier, Paul had visited first church. And when he went that time... He met with James and the elders, but also the apostles. So it's interesting here, the apostles are not here. The apostles are out in other parts of the world establishing God's church. So this time he meets with 
James and the elders, and we see a little bit of this leadership transition that we talked about briefly last week, the transition from apostles and prophets that established the early church to evangelists and pastors and elders. So here you see James and the elders leading First Church of Jerusalem. And it must have been an important time because it says, who was there? All the elders were present. And I suspect they must have had a lot of elders because we'll see later the church was thousands in numbers. So all the elders showed up when Paul came to give his report. And then in verse 19, it wasn't just a conventional report. It wasn't a report of numbers. You hear some missionary reports because of time or limitations. They say the report is we met, you know, a hundred people. Three people were saved. We had four dedications. You know, those kind of number of reports. That's not the kind of report that Paul gave James and the elders at First Church because he says he covered it one by one. Now think about who was there with him. He was there with at least seven leaders of the Gentile church and he was given a report one by one about what God was doing in his ministry. He was talking about, I'm sure, these men that were with him. He was telling how they were converted. You know, he, he had with him so, Sopater from Berea. And he was probably telling these guys in Berea, man, they love God's word. When, we, when I taught them, they took the scriptures and they checked it and they studied it. And they were continually in God's word like my friend Sopater here. And Secundus from Thessalonica was there. Paul describes that church in Thessalonica as a contagious church. You know, he would say, man, Secundus, like all of his friends back in Thessalonica, they were contagious. Their enthusiasm for the gospel infected the entire Macedonian area, like my friend here, Secundus. Timothy was there with him. You can imagine what he said about Timothy, one of his first converts, converted as a young man circumcised because he had a Jewish background. But here's Timothy with him. And then Trophimus from Ephesus was there with him. Paul had spent three years in Ephesus and uh, Trophimus was one of his most faithful friends during that time. So Paul almost certainly talked about the men that were with him and how they came to Christ and what the Holy Spirit was doing in their church. And uh, he gave a report not by numbers but one by one about what God had been doing. And when they heard it, they did what? They glorified God. That's the result of a good testimony. When we give our testimony to someone, it's not a testimony about what we have done or what we used to do. It's a testimony about what God has done. And it should result in praise not to us, but to God. And here you see the praise is not to Paul. It's not to Secundus. It's not to Timothy. The praise is to God. That's the result of Paul's report to First Church at Jerusalem. Now what's interesting to me is the, is the passage there in blue that they, he told them about the things which God had done. So, um, let's see if I can back up just a minute. They told them about the things that God had done, not the things that Paul had done, but the things that God had done. Now think about Paul. He had an impressive resume, didn't he? I mean, we would probably hire the guy if he applied for the, uh, for the pastor's job here this open at Grace Bible Church. He had an impressive resume. And the men that were there with him, the Gentile believers that were there with him, knew it. 
They knew Paul. They had seen what he had done. They had experienced what he could do. They were amazed by what Paul did. They were surprised that he kept going and kept going and kept going in a tireless way. They knew Paul. But they also knew what Paul taught them. He taught them that they had been saved by grace through faith, not by works, so that no one could boast. And so Paul stood before First Church of Jerusalem and he did not boast, did he? If there was boasting, he was boasting in what God had done. He was an example to them. Think about how encouraging it must have been for these men, the impact that it had on these Gentile believers. As Paul stood before the church of First Jerusalem and exhibited what he had taught them, that they were saved by grace, not by works, and there's no room for boasting from anybody, even the Apostle Paul. So that's actually the first example of what we'll show you is six examples, I believe, in this passage of, of Paul's humility. The first thing is that Paul gave credit where credit was due. He gave credit where credit was due. So the question for us as I think about this is when you're, uh, when you're given the opportunity to talk about something good or something, in quotes, successful, who gets mentioned the most? Just think about it. Sometimes I call that the eye test, not the, you know, a vision exam, but the eye, capital I test. And just give yourself that sometime. Who gets mentioned the most? Uh, is it yourself? Is it others? You know, because God often does accomplishes His work through others. And who deserves the most mention? Obviously, it's God who does, who gives us the very competencies with which we operate. So think about it the next time you get the opportunity to talk about something good. Maybe at school, maybe uh, at work or in church or anything. Something, you know, there's something good report to give. Give yourself the eye test as you're talking. Uh, and how often do you mention I rather than someone else or the Lord Almighty? As I was writing that down, I was thinking about myself. I was also thinking about uh, the presidential election. Politicians don't pass the eye test very often, do they? Now we could point the finger at the politicians, but we could also say we don't pass the eye test very often. I could tell you I don't pass the eye test very often. It's a pretty tough exam. But Paul passed it, and that's the first example of humility that we see in chapter 21. Now when we study the Bible, it's important, I think, to not only look at what the Bible says, but what it does not say. And so there's something interesting missing in this report to the first church at Jerusalem to me. You remember why Paul was coming? One of the reasons he wanted to go was to bring a financial gift to the church in Jerusalem. And we know later from Acts chapter 24 that he actually gave them the gift. It's mentioned only one time in the book of Acts. But there's nothing in this report about Paul gave them the financial gift. Now, it was probably a pretty big financial gift. They had collected it in many cities over several months, so it was probably a significant gift. But you know what? It was insignificant compared to the report that Paul was giving on what Christ was doing to build his church in the Gentile community. It just didn't measure up to the report of what Christ, what God was doing. So it's not even mentioned here, and Paul didn't make a big deal about it apparently. So the second thing I would see from this passage is that uh, Paul helped others without fanfare. 
no fanfare when he gave the gift, the financial gift to the church in Jerusalem. So there was no uh, honorary dinner. There was no uh, name on a plaque somewhere. There was no picture in the Jerusalem Daily News. Uh, there was no Facebook posting. It was nothing. He gave them the gift. It was not that big a deal compared to what God was doing in building the Gentile church. So that's the second thing. Paul gave credit where credit is due, but he also helped others without a lot of fanfare. Now we'll see in the next short passage that uh, James and the elders at First Church in Jerusalem knew Paul was coming. And they had a problem. And so we're going to read about that in the next short passage from uh, Acts 21. We're going to start with the second half of chapter 20. And, oh, I missed the application for that. Don't let me miss the application. I think as you think about it, uh, helping people without fanfare, uh, the question is, do you know someone who needs your help? And the obvious answer is, sure you do. Sure you do. Uh, it could be uh, somebody who needs help recovering from the flood. It could be uh, loss of job. It could be helping the church with the Employment 101 seminars that are coming up shortly. It could be just some financial assistance. Somebody may just need some chores done. Uh, you know, there's lots of jobs in this church, obviously. Uh, the Pregnancy Help Center I saw in your newsletter this week, uh, a report may need your help. There's lots of people that need your help. So the challenge is not only to offer the help, but do it without fanfare. Don't try to draw attention to yourself as you do it. Christ said, don't let your left hand know what your right hand's even doing when you, when you offer assistance. So that's the second uh, point of humility, help others without fanfare. Now, as I said, um, it's obvious that James and the elders knew Paul was coming and they had an issue with Paul. And we'll read about that in verses 20 through 22. We'll start with the second half of verse 20. It says, And they said to him, and they being James and the elders, You see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews of those who have believed, and they are all zealous for the law. And they have been told about you, that you are teaching all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children, nor to walk according to the customs. What then is to be done? They will certainly hear that you have come. So in verse 20, they tell Paul, you can see, brothers, how many thousands there are. And the word see there is not just a casual, you know, it's you have personally observed, you're an eyewitness. You can look and see how many thousands, it says there, how many thousands there are among the believing Jews in Jerusalem. The word there is a word from which we get myriads. It, it literally means tens of thousands. So there were a lot of believing Jews in the Jerusalem area whether they were members of First Church or not, I have no idea. But there were a lot, thousands of believing Jews in the area of Jerusalem when Paul came to visit. And they told Paul, you can see it. I mean, just look. You can see how many people there are. And it says, they've been told about you. That's also kind of a mild translation. The word used, translated for told is the word from which we get catechism. Now, I grew up in the Catholic Church, and there's nothing casual about catechism. It's a, it literally means you've been drilled. You've been told repeatedly, repeatedly, repeatedly. The word actually means make your ears ring. 
You've, I mean, you've been, this has been drilled into you. So they, they were not just told about Paul. They were told about Paul and told again. And if you didn't get it, I'm going to repeat it. And no, you don't understand about this, Paul. Let me tell you again. Repeat it back to me. What did Paul do? So this is catechism. They were instructed about what Paul had been doing. And what was their accusation? Their accusation was that he was teaching among the, the Jews that were out with the Gentiles. He was teaching them that they should, one, not circumcise their children, and two, not follow the Jewish customs. That was their accusation. You've been teaching the Jews, not in Jerusalem, but the Jews outside where the Gentiles live. You've been teaching them not to circumcise and not to follow the Jewish customs. Jewish customs being uh, Jewish dress, Jewish food requirements, Jewish uh, Sabbath practices, uh, feast and holy days. So he was, that was the accusation that he was teaching them not to do these things. Now, who were... Go back to verse 20. Who were, who were these Jews who had been talked to? Those Jews who have believed and were zealous for the law. It's an interesting combination of words there, isn't it? Uh, you see a number of things. There. Number one, these, these folks were believers. So these were members of First Church, formerly Jews, but they were believers. They were saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, number one. But they were Jews and they believed that Jesus was their Messiah. So they were, as we would call it in today's vernacular, completed Jews. And they followed the Jewish law. They followed the Jewish customs. Those customs were still meaningful to them. And as we'll read soon, they frequently went to the temple. In fact, in Acts chapter 3, it says all the apostles went to the temple. When? Every day they went to the temple. So these were Jews, they, they'd been brought up Jews, they were now Christians, but they still followed many of the Jewish traditions. It seems like a strange combination to, to us, doesn't it? It seems like a really strange combination, but let me offer four, four thoughts about this combination. Number one, it's almost impossible for a Jew to separate their race from their religion. You know what I'm talking about? If you, somebody says they're a Jew, that means they're of Jewish origin and they practice the Jewish faith. It's almost, you, to pull those apart, it's very, very difficult for someone of a Jewish background. Think about Jesus Christ. He was a Jew. He lived as a Jew. He worshipped as a Jew. He dressed as a Jew. He talked like a Jew, right? Because he was of the Jewish faith. So that's the first thing. It's almost impossible for a Jew to separate his religious practices from his faith. The second thing that became obvious to me as I looked at this passage was it took a long time for this custom or this practice of following the Jewish customs to die down in the early Christian church. In fact, it took, I think it's an act of God's grace that he gave them an entire generation before the temple was destroyed in A.D. 70. So the temple is still there for another uh, 13 years. Now when the temple's destroyed, a lot of their Jewish custom practices, especially worship and that kind of stuff, comes to an end, obviously. And it's also an act of God's grace that the book of Hebrews, which deals most specifically about the Hebrew customs or the Jewish customs and how they've been replaced, 
was written one year before the temple was destroyed. So God gave them time to work through this. An entire generation passed before those Jewish customs and practices, especially temple worship, came to an end. And I think it's an, it's an act of God's grace. That's the second thing. The third thing I'll tell you is that this strange combination of Christianity and Jewish customs comes back. Because when you study the tribulation time and um, the millennial kingdom, you see that the temple is there again. The temple gets rebuilt. And the Jews play a major role in the millennial kingdom. So this combination of Christianity and the Jewish, some of the Jewish customs actually comes back. Now imagine yourself in the millennial kingdom. There's a temple. There's actually sacrifices going on during the millennial kingdom. There could be a whole series of sermons to deal with the millennial kingdom. But think about what you'd be thinking if there was a lamb sacrificed in the millennial kingdom as a Christian. Wow. That would be one meaningful sacrifice, would it not? I mean, you would think about what Christ actually did as the Lamb of God. So I think in, when, the, when the temple gets rebuilt and sacrifices come back, they're going to be more, going to be reminders, vivid reminders to us of what our Savior did. So this strange combination actually comes back. And the fourth thing is, there was obviously no pressure from the leaders of the First Church of Jerusalem to stop the Jewish customs, was there? In fact, I think it's pretty obvious James and the elders were doing, they were practicing the Jewish customs themselves. So there was no pressure to stop from their church leaders. So these were those Jews who had believed who were zealous for the law. And they had a problem with what Paul was doing. Now was the accusation to Paul true? Actually it doesn't sound too far off, does it, when you know the Apostle Paul, but actually it was false. Paul still practiced, in fact, many of the Jewish customs himself. Think about, just start 21 and go back in Acts, chapter 20. When Paul started his journey, he started up from Philippi where he was there celebrating the Passover. And he didn't leave till after the Passover, the Feast of Unleavened Bread was completed. So Paul was apparently in Philippi observing uh, the Passover. Uh, in Acts chapter 18, when he left the city of Corinth during his second missionary journey, he stopped to complete a Nazarite vow and cut his hair at Chinchuria. So he took some kind of Nazarite vow. Maybe it's an informal vow because he wasn't in Jerusalem, as we'll read shortly. <clears throat> but he practiced some kind of dedication vow in Corinth. He had Timothy circumcised in Acts chapter 16 because of his Jewish background, so that he wouldn't be a stumbling block to the Jewish believers. In fact, when he went to any new city, where did he go first? He went to the synagogues. So Paul was not, you know, adverse to practicing the Jewish traditions. In fact, I think he did. But he did teach that the Jewish practices were not necessary for salvation. He made that very clear. They were not necessary for salvation, but they weren't necessarily forbidden. And the accusation that they were making in First Church is that he was teaching these practices were actually forbidden. The first epistle that Paul probably wrote was the epistle to the Galatians. And almost the entire book of Galatians deals with this issue. He's talking to the Galatians about don't go back, don't think that your Jewish tradition and your Jewish customs and your Jewish practices are saving you. They're not. You're saved by grace. We could pick almost any passage in Galatians to look at, but let me just read to you Galatians chapter 2, 
verses 15 and 16. Paul writes, We are Jews by nature and not sinners from among the Gentiles. Nevertheless, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Christ Jesus. Even we have believed in Christ Jesus, so that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. Since by the works of the law, no flesh may be justified. So Paul was attacking this issue head on from the very beginning. No, you're not justified by your Jewish practices. You're justified by faith in Christ and faith alone. But he still allowed them to practice and he himself, I believe, practiced many of the Jewish customs. So Paul was being falsely accused. But the, the Christians at First Church in Jerusalem had their doubts. They had their doubts about Paul. Think about what Paul was trying to do by bringing these Gentile believers to Jerusalem. He was trying to display to them unity of all believers. How the Christian... The, the Gentile Christians were converted just like the Jewish Christians. The Gentile believers received the Holy Spirit just like the Jewish believers. So he was trying to demonstrate by bringing these seven Gentile leaders to the first church in Jerusalem that there was unity amongst believers. But the believers at first church weren't quite ready for that, were they? They just weren't quite ready. And Paul's Gentile friends were watching all this. So they accused Paul of, they accused Paul actually falsely. Now the third thing I see from a Christian humility standpoint is that Paul did not attack the leaders at First Church when he was falsely accused. Did he defend himself? It doesn't say that he did anything. So, uh... I'm doing anything, but let me just talk louder. You want me to take this off? All right, let me just check. Oh, who said that? I mean, that's where I would be, right? Who told you that? Or uh, do you shout and interrupt? Our uh, grandson, one of our grandsons, when he wants to get a word in edgewise, he just says, wait, 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 wait. Right? So I can just imagine Paul saying, wait, 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 wait. I didn't say that, right? Uh, but that's not what he does. He's actually quiet. There's a Proverbs that uh, I like, Proverbs 17, verse 28, that says, even a fool is thought wise by his silence. So one, what you see Paul doing here is he's just quiet. And uh, Now, when you're falsely accused, you may, you may actually eventually have to address it, but God will... You may have to address it, but my encouragement would be to you to let... Give God an opportunity to address it first. I thought of examples where I was uh, falsely accused where someone else defended me or my boss stepped in and defended me or in some cases where the accuser corrected himself or other instances where the issue just went away kind of miraculously so my encouragement to all of us would be when you're falsely accused 
don't jump in and start defending yourself or demand information, but give God an opportunity to defend you first. So that's the third element of humility that I think Paul is demonstrating for us is that he didn't attack when he was falsely accused. Now the elders had a plan. And here's what they tell Paul starting in verse 23. Can you guys hear me okay now? So verse 23 says, Therefore do this, these are the elders talking to Paul, Therefore do this that we tell you to do. We have four men who are under a vow. Take and purify yourself along with them and pay their expenses so that they may shave their heads and all will know that there is nothing to the things which they have been told about you but that you, that you yourself also walk orderly, keeping the law. But concerning the Gentiles who have believed, we wrote, having decided that they should abstain from meat sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what is strangled and from fornication, then Paul took them in and the next day, purifying himself along with them, went into the temple, giving notice of the completion of the days of purification until the sacrifice was offered for each one of them. So in verse 23, the elders had a plan and they told Paul, do it. It wasn't a suggestion, was it? They told him, this is what you are to do. And then they tell him that there's, they have four men who are taking a vow. And it's obviously a Nazarite vow, not a Nazarene vow. Jesus was a Nazarene from Nazareth. This is a Nazarite vow. It was actually established by God and given to Moses back in Numbers chapter 6. Almost the entire chapter 6 of the book of Numbers is dedicated to this Nazarite vow. And it's a vow of separation. Nazarite actually means separation. So it was a vow of separation or dedication, typically for 30 or 60 or 90 days. Although we know at least Samson was a Nazarite for life. And maybe Samuel in the Old Testament and quite possibly John the Baptist were also lifelong Nazarites. And the requirements for a Nazarite vow was, number one, you didn't cut your hair during the Nazarite vow period. You drank no alcohol. You didn't eat anything that had grapes in it. And you weren't supposed to even be around dead bodies or you would be defiled. Those were the basic requirements of a Nazarite vow. At the end of the Nazarite vow, you would go to the temple, cut your hair, and offer it along with several sacrifices to end your time of separation. Now, during Jesus' time, the Pharisees had come up with some additional requirements, not surprising, but they made the law that during the last seven days of a Nazarite vow, you could actually join somebody in their vow for the last seven days receive a little bit of blessing, but you had to pay for it. You had to pay for the animal sacrifices. You had to pay for the grain sacrifices that were offered. You had to pay the fee that was due the priest uh, to end the Nazarite vow. But if you wanted to pay, you could actually join somebody in the last seven days of their, of their vow period. So this, they say we've got four men who are under a vow. And they tell Paul, go to the temple, go with them, and purify yourselves along with them. So apparently the men had become unpure, maybe by being in the, in the vicinity of a dead body, we're not told, but they had to go to the temple to purify themselves. And the, the elders tell Paul, purify yourself while you're at it. The practice in those days for many practicing Jews was when they went into Gentile territory and they came back to Jerusalem, they went to the temple to purify themselves. 
like to take a hot shower. That was a dirty place I just went to. So they tell Paul to go purify himself along with these four men. And then they remind him about uh, what they wrote in verse 25 that says we... uh, we wrote, having decided that they should abstain from meat sacrifice to idols, etc. They're referring back to Acts chapter 15. I'll just summarize a few parts of Acts 15. You studied it months ago, but in Acts 15 is when several men, starting in verse 1, some men came down from Judea and began teaching the brethren in Antioch, unless you are circumcised according to the customs of Moses, you can't be saved. And when Paul and Barnabas had great dissension and debate with them, the brethren determined that Paul and Barnabas and some others of them should go to Jerusalem to the apostles and elders concerning the issue. So Paul and Barnabas said, no, that's not right. The Jew, they don't have to be circumcised. They don't have to follow the Jewish customs in order to be saved. So they went to Jerusalem. When they got there, some Christians who were formerly Pharisees, it said, stood up and said, this is what they have to do. They have to be circumcised. They have to follow the Jewish customs in order to be saved. And actually, Peter was the first one who spoke up. Peter said, that's wrong. You know, I can see that God is bringing the Gentile believers in. They're getting the same Holy Spirit that we are. That's just not right. Don't put a yoke on them that we couldn't bear and that our forefathers couldn't bear. Don't burden them with that same yoke. And then James actually agreed with that and said he's right the Gentile believers are being brought into the church they don't have to become Jews in order to do so but we should send them a letter and we should in this letter and they did ask them to abstain from things sacrificed to idols and from blood and from things strangled and from fornication so they sent this letter to the Gentile believers in Antioch and the surrounding area Interesting, this what they asked them to abstain from. They, they, they first of all apologized for bad information. They said, it's not right. We had people come from our church and tell you these things are not right. You don't have to become a Jew to be saved, but it's still a good idea to stay away from these four things. And these four things are interesting because uh, they were four things that were absolutely abhorrent to the Jews so that if a Jewish Christian saw you doing this, they would, <laughs> they'd be taken back by it. But also these were four things that were very common in idol practice, idol worship of those days. And so it could be a stumbling block to the Jews if they did it. It could also be a stumbling block to a converted Gentile because this is the religious practices that they had formerly engaged in. So in their wisdom through the Holy Spirit, James and the elders asked them to abstain from these four things. And so back in Acts chapter 21... They remind Paul that they wrote him to abstain from those things. Those were the church's recommendations. And then they went into the temple. They went into the temple in verse 26 because that's where the sacrifices were required to end the Nazarite vows. I like verse 24 where they said, but that you yourself also walk orderly keeping the law. They were... This walk orderly is an interesting word. It actually means to walk in a row or a straight line. It's a military term to advance in line. In other words, they were telling Paul, if you do these things, then people will know that you stay in line. That you're, you know, you're staying in line, Paul, just like a good Jew would stay in line. So that's what they tell Paul to do, to go to the temple and join this Nazarite vow and to pay for it and join him in the last seven days. And Paul goes. Do you find that strange? 
Why would Paul go? What's going on? At first glance, it seems really strange to me. On fifth glance, it seems really strange to me that Paul would go and do with these, with these uh, four men in the temple. But there's a couple of interesting points. Number one, the elders told him to do it. Right? They, Paul had established elders at all the churches he had, he had founded. And their plan wasn't sinful. It just wasn't necessary. He, they weren't asking him to go sin. They were just asking him to do something that wasn't necessary. And Paul obeyed. He didn't respond, Now that's stupid. Or that's totally unnecessary. Or that's a waste of money. That's a waste of time. Why am I being punished for something I didn't even do? Do these words sound familiar? So Paul didn't do any of that. The elders told him to go do this. It wasn't a sinful request, so he did it. He went and did it. So the fourth point of humility that I see in these passages is that Paul submitted to God's established authorities. God had established the elders at First Church. He was visiting First Church. They told him to go do this. It wasn't a sinful request, so he did it. He went and did it. So the question for us that I had as I thought about this is, are you praying for your elders? You have a fantastic group of elders here in this church. Some I've known for a long time and some I just met recently, but they're all anxious to follow God's lead. So they're under a lot of pressure right now, obviously. A lot of extra work for them to do in searching for a new pastor. But I can tell you what they want most from you, what they, actually what they want most, period, is to follow God's leading. That's what they really want, is to follow God's lead when it comes to where he wants to take this church, what pastor he wants to bring to this church, what guidance he has for this body, his wisdom on how to handle certain situations. So what could you do for your elders? You could pray for them, first and foremost, that they would know God's leading in all these issues that they're facing. You know, it's much easier to submit to someone's leadership when you know that they are following God's lead, is it not? So pray for them that they understand God's leading so that you can follow them without reservation. Now, there's lots of other people that we're required to submit to as well, right? Not just the elders at the church, government leaders, bosses, parents, especially fathers on Father's Day, right? Teachers, uh, lots of people that are in authority over us. And Paul sets a good example here in that the, he submitted to God's established authority uh, as long as it wasn't a sinful request that was made of him. But I think there's something else going on here, and that's that Paul was deferring to his weaker brothers. Paul was deferring to his weaker, weaker brothers. Flip over to 1 Corinthians with me, if you would. This is a book that was written shortly before Paul showed up in Jerusalem, maybe just months, but 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9. 1 Corinthians 8, verse 9. Paul's writing to the Corinthians about food sacrifice to idols. And he says in verse 9, But take care that this liberty of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if someone sees you who have knowledge dining in an idol's temple... Will not his conscience, if he is weak, be strengthened to eat things sacrificed to idols? For through your knowledge, he who is weak is ruined, the brother for whose sake Christ died. And so by sinning against the brethren and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. 
Therefore, if food causes my brother to stumble, I will never eat meat again, so that I will not cause my brother to stumble. Now, the example he's using there is meat sacrifice to idols. You could apply it to anything. And what Paul says, if, if my eating meat would cause someone, a weaker brother, to stumble because it was sacrificed to an idol, which actually means nothing, <laughs> but if that bothered my brother, I would not only not eat that meat, I would not eat any meat at all so that they might never think there was an idol involved in what I was doing. So he was deferring, in this case, to his weaker brother. And flip over to chapter 9, verse 19. So this is 1 Corinthians 9, verse 19. Paul writes, For though I am free from all men, I have made myself a slave to all, so that I may win more. To the Jews I become as a Jew, so that I might win Jews. To those who are under the law as under the law, though not being myself under the law, so that I might win those who are under the law. To those who are without the law as without law, though not being without the law of God, but under the law of Christ, so that I might win those who are without the law. To the weak I become weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all men, so that I may always, that I may by all means save some. You follow what Paul's saying, lots of words there, but when he's with the Jews, he's perfectly fine to follow the Jewish customs so that he can relate to the Jews. When he's with the Gentiles, he's more than happy to follow the Gentile customs so that he can relate to the Gentiles. He, when he's with the weak, he acts as though he's weak. He wants to relate to the people for what purpose? For the purpose of progressing the gospel. So he says, I do these things so that I might save some. So I think that's exactly what Paul is doing when you see him going... To the temple. He's been asked by the elders to go, and he is now deferring to his weaker brothers. So, in another passage in Romans, he talks about, uh, Romans chapter 14, he talks about don't get hung up on disputable matters, right? Let them go. So, the question for us is what disputable matters do you treat as indisputable? Think about some of them. Is it baptism? Is it the type of baptism? Is it the necessity of baptism? Uh, is it uh, your end times uh, leanings, your eschatology? I know your church just recently rewrote your statement of faith having to do with eschatology because it was too narrow. It was, it was too dogmatic about things we don't necessarily know everything about. Is it speaking in tongues? Is it uh, worship music? Some people get hung up on what kind of music to play. Is it your Bible translation? I don't know what, in, what disputable matters you treat as indisputable. And it can be really uncomfortable at times, right, when you have to just tolerate a disputable matter. Uh, something like playing Jeopardy during a sermon is, is a disputable matter for many of us, right? So uh, uh, it can be uncomfortable. But think about what was going on here. There were two groups present when Paul was visiting First Church. There were the Jewish believers at First Church, and there were the Gentile believers that he brought with them on his journey. So who did Paul consider the weaker brothers? Who did Paul defer to? He deferred to the Christians at First Church, didn't he? That's who he deferred to. And those members of those Christians at First Church, many of them had been Christians for decades longer 
than the Gentile believers Paul brought with him. So age doesn't necessarily defer a stronger faith. Time as a Christian doesn't necessarily defer or indicate a stronger faith. Paul deferred to the Gentile believers who came. Paul deferred to the Jewish Christians at First Church because he knew that his Gentile friends he brought with him would understand. They were of the stronger faith. It's interesting, isn't it? That it was the, the newer believers to whom Paul thought could handle it best. So the plan works for a little while. We'll see it in verse 27. The plan works for a little while because it says, When the seven days were almost over, nothing had happened during the first seven days when Paul was in the temple, the Jews from Asia, upon seeing him in the temple, began to stir up all the crowd and laid hands on him crying out, Men of Israel, come to our aid. This is a man who preaches to all men everywhere against our people and the law and this place. And besides, he has even brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. For they had previously seen Trophimus the Ephesian in the city with him, and they supposed that Paul had brought him into the temple. So these Jews from Asia were Jews from Asia Minor, and I suspect they were probably from Ephesus because we see in verse 29 that they had previously seen Trophimus. They recognized Trophimus, the Ephesian, in the temple. And, you know, about a year earlier in Ephesus, there was this huge riot where the Jewish people there tried to persecute Paul. They were actually stopped by the Gentiles. And so I think there were many Ephesian Jewish people in Jerusalem at the time for the Feast of Pentecost, and they were probably the people that were accusing Paul of teaching that they could not follow the Jewish customs anymore. So they were Jews from Asia Minor, and we'll come back and pick up verse 28 in just a minute. Let's continue with the scripture starting in verse 30. Then all the city was provoked, and the people rushed together, and taking hold of Paul, they dragged him out of the temple, and immediately the doors were shut. And while they were seeking to kill him, a report came up to the commander of the Roman cohort that all Jerusalem was in confusion. And at once he took along some soldiers and centurions and ran down to them, and they saw the commander and the soldiers. They stopped beating Paul. So in verse 30 it says, The whole city, the, all the city was provoked. This was the time of Pentecost, as we studied last week. It's estimated that during the major feast during this time, there were at least two million people in Jerusalem. And all those people, most of those people, at the temple. So there was a huge crowd at the temple as this was going on. And they all got excited. They all got provoked. And they sought to kill Paul. So think about this. They have millions of Jews at the temple for a major feast. Now trying to murder somebody. Trying to murder an innocent man. Sound familiar? Sure, 27 years earlier, right? The, the Feast of Passover, where they tried to murder... They tried, not tried to murder, they actually had Jesus Christ murdered at the Feast of Passover. And then we see in verses 31 and 32, there was a very strong Roman presence in Jerusalem at this time. In fact, there was a cohort of Roman soldiers. That's a thousand Roman soldiers. So during times of major feasts, the Roman government would bring in a cohort of soldiers stationed at the Antonio Fortress, which was just adjacent to the temple mounds themselves. And then 
the commander calls two, or at least two centurions, a centurion there in plural in verse 32. A centurion is a commander of a hundred soldiers. So the commander gets alert that everybody's in turmoil. He calls at least two centurions with their hundred soldiers each to come address the issue. Now go back to verse 28 for just a minute. Of what was of what was the Jews accusing Paul? So these Jews from Asia Minor, what were they accusing Paul of doing? And what got the other Jewish worshipers in the temple so excited? Well, in verse 28, the first part of verse 28, it was the normal stuff. Paul's been preaching against the Jews, against the law, against the temple. He'd heard this in almost every city he'd gone to. Nothing particularly unique about that accusation. But then at the last part of verse 28, he, he's accused of bringing Gentiles into the temple. Which really got the Jews excited because Gentiles weren't allowed into the, into the inner courts of the temple. In fact, there have been signs found... Uh, from this time period. Let me just read the sign to you. It's almost humorous when you read the sign, but they would post these signs around the temple grounds, and this sign read in Latin and Greek, so two different languages, no man of alien race is to enter within the barricade that goes around the temple. And if anyone is taken in the act, let him know that he has himself to blame for the penalty of death that follows. And that's a pretty long sign. You know, they could have just put Gentiles with a big X on it or something, and everybody would have known. But it's almost a legal statement, right? They post these signs around the temple area warning Gentiles, don't go in here, it's punishable by death. And the Romans actually allowed them to do this as a way to keep peace uh, during these big feast times. And so in verse 29, we see that the Jews from Asia Minor, Minor saw Trophimus and assumed he must have gone into the temple area. He actually didn't go, but that was their assumption. And in fact, if Trophimus had gone into the temple area, who was in trouble? Trophimus was in trouble, not Paul. And so they were totally messed up. There were no valid charges against Paul, but he was their target and probably had been their target for many years. And so then continuing in verse 33, then the commander came up and took hold of him and ordered him to be bound with two chains, and he began asking who he was and what he had done. But among the crowd, some were shouting one thing and some another, and when he could not find out the facts because of the uproar, he ordered him to be brought into the barracks. When he got to the stairs, he was carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the mob, for the multitude of the people kept following them, shouting, Away with him! So we see in verse 33, Agabus' prophecy is fulfilled. Almost immediately, Paul gets to Jerusalem. He's, he's uh, captured by the Gentiles. He's bound, I mean, captured by the Jews. He's bound and handed over to the Gentiles. And then you see a typical mob behavior, right? We see it today. I mean, they had no idea what they were upset about. He would, the commander was asking them, what's going on? Some gave him one answer, some gave another. There's no way the commander could figure out what was going on. We see it even on TV, interviews about protest and mob riots are asking what's going on you don't even know you get a different answer it was typical mob mentality uh, and the commander was surprised then when Paul spoke to him in Greek because Greek was the language of the educated it was the language of the rest of the Roman world not Palestine and so it was obvious to the commander that Paul was not the typical Jew that he would encounter in Jerusalem and so he was surprised. He said, I didn't know you spoke Greek. And then he thought, he said, then you are not the Egyptian 
who I thought you were. This Egyptian's interesting. Uh, Josephus adds a few details. It was actually an Egyptian leader a few years earlier, two to three years before this time, who had assembled a force of 4,000 assassins. And they actually killed hundreds of Jews before the Romans caught them and stopped it. But this leader escaped and went undercover and would come back at major feast days and clandestinely go around killing people. He was a terrorist. And he was loose at this time. And so the only thing the commander could figure out, why would this crowd get so upset? Why would they be so violent? Why would they be trying to kill somebody on the feast of Pentecost? His assumption was they found this guy. They just found the Egyptian. And that was his assumption. It was a wrong assumption, right? And he realized it when Paul spoke to him. So it's interesting to me that Paul's reaction during this, uh, during this riot. Because again, you don't see any arguing. You see no fighting with the mob. You see no instant defense when he gets to talk to the commander, right? He's not saying, well, no, 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 they were, I'm, I don't know why they're, they're, not, they're trying to kill me. I'm innocent. He doesn't do any of that. It's almost as if he's not even surprised, isn't it? He had told he was going to suffer and be persecuted, and I think he was actually ready to take advantage of it. He was so comfortable in the plan that God had for him, he was looking for opportunities. And he was calm. It's it's almost as if he was in charge of this situation as the mob was attacking him. And so his calm requests to the commander were favorably received. And so the sixth element of... uh, Humility that I see in this passage is that Paul was ready to commit to God's plan. This was God's plan and he was comfortable in it. He uh, was ready to take advantage of it. So the question for you, for you and us and me is that do we know God's plan for our life right now? And if you do, are you uh, wrestling with it or are you cooperating with it? I uh, can remember several times... Uh, what, before becoming a Christian, one of the last hurdles I had to get over was if I become a Christian, God is going to make me a missionary and send me to Peru. And I have no idea where Peru came from. Uh, later, Pam told me that accurately that God is quite choosy about what missionaries he sends into the field. He wasn't going to send me. But uh, I remember in church, I mean at, at Dow, several times praying, God, I'm ready to go be a missionary. I'll quit my job at Dow. Just let me go be a missionary. And almost miraculously, every time I got an answer that made it very clear to me, my job was to be a missionary at Dow. And so, once I got my mind wrapped around that, then I could be ready. I could be prepared. I knew what my role was. When there was an opportunity to witness, I knew what I was supposed to do. When there was a role to exhibit or to challenge somebody, I knew what my role was as a missionary at Dow Chemicals. So, the question for all of us is, do you know what... Your, God's plan is for your life right now and are you comfortable in it? Are you dealing with it? Are you, are you using it looking for opportunities like Paul did when he got to Jerusalem? And then in verse 40 Paul motions to the crown a great hush comes over the mob the commander who's sitting there probably looking on in amazement and Paul opens his mouth and, he's, mouth and he starts to speak to him in Aramaic. And we'll continue the story next week. Like a good TV show, we'll, uh, we'll end it there.
And Jared will pick up what Paul actually says to this uh, crowd. But let me wrap it up with this and say that uh, when you look at that list of... Uh, humility characteristics uh, we could actually play final jeopardy the old timers among us know how the game of jeopardy ends it ends with final jeopardy so the final jeopardy question question is he uh, he perfectly demonstrates humility and the question is who is Jesus Christ think about Jesus Christ with that list of uh, characteristics of humility. He fills everyone to a T. We could have a whole sermon series just looking at those uh, characteristics. Think about how Jesus deferred to his weaker brothers. The fact that he was actually born a human being. The fact that he uh, was obedient to his parents. Even though he was going to have to rescue his parents from their sin one day. Think about following the Jewish customs and going to worship. Can you imagine Jesus Christ in a Jewish worship service? I mean, he is submitting to his weaker brothers, to us, even answering stupid questions from the Pharisees, right? He's deferring to his weaker brothers. But Jesus is a whole lot more than just a model of humility. What makes Jesus' humility so incredible is the reason that he did it. And he did it to open the doors of heaven to you and me. He did it to offer so that he could offer to pay the penalty for our sins and give us his righteous standing before God. And so these lists of humble behaviors that we just looked at, these six behaviors, actually don't get us one inch closer to eternal life when we practice them. And they don't earn us any favor with God whatsoever. They're not required. But there is humility that is required for eternal life. And that humility is to confess our sinfulness and our rebellion against the Holy God and to admit that we are absolutely helpless to do anything about it. We can't stop sinning. We can't pay the penalty. We can't earn any favor. We stand condemned. And then to place our faith in Jesus and what he's done for us on the cross. And that's an act of humility that God will always honor. Always. So if you haven't humbled yourself in that way, I would encourage you today's the day, and I would love to talk to you afterward or one of the elders if you've never made that commitment to Christ. Because once we do that, then these humble activities that we looked at today become our ambition. That's what we want to do. Not because we want to do them because we don't want to earn favor with God, because it doesn't. Not because we want to uh, look good to others or to God. We do it to get ourselves out of the way. Simply put, we want to get out of the way so that people can see God and what God is doing. As John the Baptist, the Nazarite, said of Christ, we, he must increase and I must decrease. So let's pray. Father, as we uh, complete this study of uh, Paul's humility, we confess that uh, we have a lot to grow in this area. So we pray that you would convict us where we need to be convicted and encourage us where we need to be encouraged. Father, we're humbled by your gracious gift that you've given us. And we thank you in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.